Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Slowly, we're becoming acclimated to our new surroundings in Ecuador. And uh, one place that we've really enjoyed going to, and ironically, it's called 11 by 11 Pizza and Cervezas, uh, is, is a wonderful place to go. They accept dogs. We've taken haggis there. And uh, you sit out on the patio. And yeah, it's a very dog-friendly city. It seems to be. First time we went, we didn't have haggis, and Kat and I are sitting at a table, and uh, there are dogs around, and then this, this woman comes in, and Kat get, gets so excited, and she's, she's getting into dog petting mode, which I recognize uh, early on, but then she gets this crestfallen expression on her face, and she says, wait, I, w- I wrote it down, let me, oh, let me I'm going to quote you exactly, you said, oh, I thought that was a dog, and I got real happy, but it was just a stupid baby. <laughs> My life is one big colorful adventure with Katrina Walls. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, we found an apartment. That's exciting. And uh, we are going to be moving in in the next couple of days. Yeah. So that I, I'm excited to get settled. Me too. Because right now I feel crazy. I'm having a hard time finding things. I'm mean, like, uh, sweetie, where's that belt? And then I realize, oh, yeah, it's in storage in Orlando. The thing that I have found I've missed the most is my whiteboard. Like, I find it's so hard for me to keep track of things and and make sense of my life without a whiteboard. You're very visual. Uh, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. what's uh what you got on the docket for today, oh, handsome got, fella man? I've got I've got doppelgangers on the docket. It's a doppelganger docket, if you will. Doppelgangers, a term that often sends shivers down your spine, and certainly it's an intriguing subject. The word is derived from the German word doppel, which means double, mm-hmm. and ganger, which means goer. Is she a goer? Is she a goer? Is she a double goer? A. A doppelganger traditionally refers to an eerie duplicate or an uncanny lookalike of a living person. 
The concept has fascinated people for centuries, making its mark on folklore and literature and even science. Today, we're going to journey through the realm of doppelgangers and we'll look at the real life stories. These are things that actually happened or have been documented as actually happening. I have been told that I look like a lot of people. Yeah. And there was one instance where a man came up to me and started talking to me about Tim. Have you heard from Tim? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, I do not know who you're talking about. You have one of those faces. Yeah, I guess. These instances are intriguing. Individuals that have come face to face with their living mirror mirror image. Certainly strange. And some would, would say almost supernatural. And of course, part of that some would be me. Um <laughs> Are these cases more coincidence or is it pushing us to examine our understanding of our identity and individuality? Some of these events we're about to look at are almost like ghost stories in a way. Mm. And doppelgangers and ghosts do share significant overlap. While ghosts are often linked with hauntings and unresolved pasts, doppelgangers frequently are viewed as omens or harbingers of disruption, misfortune, or death. Like the observers from Fringe. Yes, that is exactly right. Both phenomena challenge our perception of identity, <laughs> existence, and the fine line between the natural and the supernatural. But while ghosts evoke a connection to what once was, doppelgangers present a chilling duplicate of what might be. Oh, I did not know this. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln had an encounter with a doppelganger? No, I didn't yeah. know that. It's one of the most famous and intriguing stories in history when it comes to doppelgangers. And it is kind of tinged with an air of the supernatural. The story, which was recounted by Lincoln's wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, who admittedly was a uh, a big Believer in the spiritualist movement. I and, thought you were going to say unstable. And, and that as well, too. But she had a hard life. Anyway, this particular account takes place shortly after Lincoln's election in 1860. He was very tired after a very long day, and he was resting on a couch in his Springfield, Illinois home. It must have been a long couch. Very long couch for a long day and a long president. As he looked up from the couch, he saw his reflection in a mirror across the room. Instead of just one reflection, he was startled to see two. His, his own familiar face and a second, more pale, ghastly version beside him. Oh, I don't like that at all. No. So he stood up and the image disappeared. And he thought really very little of it until later that evening. And then he tried to recreate the vision as he lay down on the couch. Once again, to his astonishment, the double image did reappear. However, the doppelganger remained visible only when Lincoln was lying down, vanishing when he stood up or changed position. Now, even my open-mindedness to this type of thing immediately suggests... It was a beveled mirror? It was... Mirror technology was in its infancy right. in those days. But again, his doppelganger appeared ghastly and pale, almost dead. So alarmed, he disclosed this to his wife, Mary Todd. And despite his attempts to dismiss it as a mere optical illusion, she interpreted it as... A bad omen. She believed the appearance of the doppelganger was a sign that he would be reelected, implying that he would serve two terms as reflected by two images. But 
He would not live through his second term, suggested by the paler, ghostly, corpse-like visage of his second image, which was a chilling premonition that unfortunately came true. Now, this, she said this before he passed away? It was right after he was elected for his first term. So that was 1860. He died in 1865. But what I'm asking is, when did the world know that she and he saw and felt these things? She recounted it to friends shortly after it happened. Uh, Okay. So it's in her diaries and that sort of thing. Percy Shelley. He's popped up a number of times on this podcast. Mm. And the tale of Percy Shelley's encounter with his doppelganger is also a chilling one, especially given the tragic fate that awaited him. According, to, again, to his wife, Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, Percy had several encounters with his spectral double. In one particularly eerie incident, he was in Italy, and Percy told Mary that he had met his own apparition. Ooh. The phantom... The phantom Percy, his doppelganger, appeared to him one night and asked him, quote, How long do you mean to be content? Oh. What the hell does that mean? That's, a, that's disturbing. Yeah. That, of course, distressed Shelley, as well as puzzling him. Then in what's considered a foreboding incident, uh, Shelley had a nightmare where he met again his uh, doppelganger. A boating incident? Like in the beginning of Sleepaway Camp? Did I say boating incident? You said foreboding. Well, it was a boating incident, so. Wow. Yeah. And then there was a night that Shelley had a bit of a nightmare, and his doppelganger warned him that uh, he would be swept out to sea. Tragically, not long after these episodes, Shelley drowned in a sudden storm while sailing back in his schooner, the Don Juan, in 1822. He was only 29 years old at the time. Then there's John Donne, the noted metaphysical poet and cleric of the late 16th and early 17th century. He had what he described as a profound experience with his doppelganger that's been widely discussed over the following centuries. The experience is especially notable given the precision of the information that was relayed by the apparition. Donne was on a diplomatic mission in Paris. The year was 1612. He was visited by the specter of his wife, Anne Dunn, in his hotel room. Anne appeared to him holding a newborn baby in her arms. She looked at him sadly and then vanished. Now, this freaked him out. His wife was, in fact, pregnant and due to deliver a baby. And, you know, of course, that meant he needed to go to Paris on a diplomatic trip. Um, (laughs) And he interpreted the apparition as a sign that his wife had died in childbirth and that... uh, In fact, he wrote a letter to a friend stating that his wife's ghost had visited him and given him the sad news that she had delivered a stillborn child. Oh, my gosh. Now, if I had been John Dunn, I probably would have not written to a friend, but reached out to my wife. Yeah. Maybe see what had happened. Headed home, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But upon his return to England, Dunn discovered that his premonition was, in fact, accurate. During his absence, Anne had, indeed, given birth to a stillborn child. Now, she had not died. Oh, that's good. But still a pretty uncanny incident. And again, backed up by correspondence. Peter the Great, the Tsar of Russia. Between 1682 and his death in 1725, it's considered one of Russia's most influential rulers. Mm. 
Among many of his notable achievements, there is also a particularly intriguing story regarding his encounter with a doppelganger. According to accounts and palace records, Peter was visited by his spectral double on multiple occasions. Now, his doppelganger was not simply a silent apparition, but interacted with him in a rather menacing manner. It's said, in fact, that uh, during one encounter, the doppelganger was seen arguing with Peter and then going and sitting on his throne. That's a presumptuous act by a ghost. Somebody else saw the doppelganger? Yes. What? Palace guards. And Peter the Great ordered the guards to shoot it. And the shots had no effect on the spectral figure. It simply vanished, only to reappear again at a later date. The continued visits from the apparition were interpreted by some as a bad omen of Peter's impending death. And indeed, Peter did die shortly after the reported encounters. Guy de Maupassant, the famed French author, known for his masterful short stories, had a chilling encounter with his doppelganger near the end of his life. It was a de Maupassant doppelganger? It was indeed! Guy de Maupassant encountered his doppelganger. Now, it wasn't just one event, but a recurrent haunting, if you will. His spectral double was not just visible to him, but also interacted in a very unsettling manner. In the most notorious of these episodes, his doppelganger approached his bed and began dictating a story to him. Oh, well, that's nice. It was said that the author was seemingly under some sort of spell, transcribing the story as it was narrated. The tale, later published as the Horla, centers around a man haunted by an invisible being that imposes a malevolent control over him, which was an eerie parallel to what he was actually going through. Many see the Horla as a reflection of Guy de Maupassant's increasing paranoia and fear as his mental uh, state started to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. That was due to syphilis, by the way. Well, I think this is a great tidbit because, I mean, as if Peter the Great didn't have syphilis also. That's true. Maybe there's some sort of syphilis connection. That could very well be. Although I don't see Abe Lincoln as a syphilis kind of guy, but... He did wrestle a lot. That's true. And we all know you can get syphilis from wrestling and toilet seats. (laughs) Napoleon Bonaparte. Syphilis. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely a syphilis guy. He had uh, many accounts with what he considered to be a doppelganger. The most widely circulated story suggests that uh, Napoleon's doppelganger was not merely a passive specter, but an active, unsettling presence. The spectral figure was said to have appeared to Napoleon on multiple occasions, often before significant events or battles, leading to speculation that the apparition was an omen of some sort. And the most notable instance occurred prior to Napoleon's disastrous invasion of Russia in uh, 1812, the Battle of Waterloo. So are we feeling like these doppelgangers are kind of mothmanny in that they It could be. Yeah, there seems to be some sort of a of a parallel there, mm. certainly. Not as cute though. Oh god, no. In 1812 before the Battle of Waterloo, the uh, doppelganger was reported to have appeared to Napoleon in his private quarters, even assuming his place in Napoleon's bed. The occurrence was viewed by some as an ill omen and an an indicator that uh, he was about to experience devastating losses, which, in fact, he did Mm. at the Battle of Waterloo. Doppelgangers, long a subject of human fascination, traditionally perceived as identical copies or spectral doubles of living individuals, although largely considered part of folklore 
There are numerous real-life anecdotes like those we just uh, talked about throughout history that seem to make a compelling case for something unexplained anyway. Here's one provocative theory that I love. Doppelgangers and ghosts might represent two different interpretations of the same mysterious phenomena. Ghosts, as traditionally understood, are spirits of the deceased making their presence known. However, if we're to reframe this concept from a broader, more, shall we say, quantum perspective, it's plausible that what we perceive as ghosts could be manifestations of individuals from different points in time. Likewise, when someone reports seeing their doppelganger, they might be witnessing not a supernatural duplicate, but rather an echo of their own existence from another time. And since we understand time not to be linear, that makes perfect sense. Yep, just getting to that, this interpretation leans into the concept of time slips. Where the linear progression of time as we understand it is disrupted, allowing the past, present, and future to momentarily coexist. Or, as you alluded to, perhaps it isn't linear at all and everything is happening all at once, but in order for us, our brains, to organize the information, we perceive it as all linear. In such a scenario, a doppelganger encounter could be a person glimpsing their, quote, ghost from a future or past, or vice versa. This hypothesis, of course, speculative and not substantiated by current scientific understanding, does open an intriguing thought experiment about time, existence, and our own perception of reality. It compels us to reevaluate the traditional dichotomy between the supernatural and the natural and would urge us to consider more complex interpretations of these age-old phenomena. As we learn more about quantum physics, perhaps... It will help us understand these things that have been open-ended questions for centuries. Doppelgangers are real. That's all I'm trying to say. My source information, the Smithsonian, Smithsonian Magazine, History.com, and Wikipedia. Or it's syphilis and beveled mirrors. And that is the name of this episode. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. 
And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now... That thing in the middle. Back in 1946, a man claiming to be a detective gave a pedestrian a camera and asked her to take a picture of a suspect. The detective turned out to be a gangster. The suspect turned out to be his ex-wife. And the camera turned out to be a concealed shotgun that was fired by the shutter button. That didn't end well. We got a message from Michelle. Dear Kat and Jethro, first of all, I love you guys. The more I listen, the more I know that Kat is my spirit animal. (laughs) We had a very similar upbringing, and I, too, made potions. They weren't to cure cancer. They were to rid you of cooties. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I saw this, and I thought of you, too. And it's a screenshot that says, The most dangerous kind of canoes are Vulcanoos. (laughs) Volcanoes. Someone said, I'm going to pronounce it like this from now on. We live on the side of a volcano. We do. Now that we're in Ecuador. And sure, we might be engulfed by fiery lava at some point. But in the meantime, there are a lot of great hot springs around for us to bathe in. So that seems fair. And Bougainvillea. Kelly writes to us, hello, I was curious what you had to do to be able to take haggis with you to Ecuador. I've heard about animals having to be put in quarantine for a period of time. Hope that all went smoothly, even though I don't really know you, it feels like I do. I'm happy with your adventure, but sad that you aren't all in the U.S. anymore. Stay safe. You're Missouri girl, or Missouri, if you will. Kelly. Kelly, yeah, you know, we're going to be back and forth uh, between here and the States constantly. And uh, in fact, we're in the early process of putting together some ideas for a a tour, a live tour in the U.S. So Mm -hmm. um, we're, you know, it's we're still there with you. Yeah. And we're always looking at uh, maybe a potential home in the States or if we could find maybe a haunted library to buy. I would love something like that. Yeah. Maybe we should start a GoFundMe. Help us buy a haunted library, and then you can all come and visit. A boo fund me. <laughs> ha. As far as bringing the dog 
to Ecuador, bringing Haggis. I'll let Kat speak to that because she did most of the paperwork. It really was quite easy, though. Yeah, um, Ecuador is uh, not one of the countries that you need to quarantine um, coming into. Coming out of is a little more difficult because it is a high risk uh, for rabies country. Like, they're on some sort of list. We had to make sure that he was up to date on all of the vaccinations that they require, and that includes for parasites and all that business. And then we had to get that certified by a USDA certified veterinarian. Um, that was, I mean, that was the, the hard part was really that. I was concerned, you know, getting on the plane, getting off the plane. We, we didn't put him in cargo. We, we had him in the, in the cabin with us. But we got there and it was like it, simple as checking a bag. Oh, you've got a dog. Okay. You have the paperwork. Yeah, here it is. Okay. Have a nice trip. Yeah. And then coming into the country, they didn't even ask to see the paperwork. Of course, he was so quiet. Maybe they didn't even realize he was with us. Shh, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, Kelly. This is professional-grade storytelling. Don't try this at home, kids. This is The Box of Oddities. So that all leads me to this question, what you got for me? Do you remember 1973? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Um, Did you ever hear of something regarding a funeral for, like, some frozen foods or anything like that? A funeral for frozen foods. The furrowed brow tells me you don't know what I'm talking about. No, no, but you've certainly locked my interest. Okay, so the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 was the first of a series of significant consumer protection laws that were enacted by Congress in the 20th century. That set testing requirements to ensure the safety and cleanliness of food and drugs meant for human consumption. Thank goodness. And it led to the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. Well, the first major national recall didn't happen until 1973. In January of that year, employees at the United Canning Company in Ohio were checking their inventory when they noticed some of their tins of mushrooms had swelled up. You know, 
Swelled cans are a case for concern, and tests revealed that the cans were harboring botulism, clostridium, botulism, Aha. the bacterium that causes botulism. Botulism is bad news bears. It's rare, but it is a serious condition caused by a toxin that attacks the body's nerves. And there are different types of botulism, but the symptoms of foodborne botulism include trouble swallowing or speaking, facial weakness, blurred or double vision, drooping eyelids, trouble breathing, nausea, vomiting, stomach cramps, paralysis, death. Up until the death part, I was like, yeah, I can deal with that. It sounds like a weekend that I would have had when I was younger, like in 1973. The customers of United Canning were contacted by the FDA, including Tolono Pizza Products, a Chicago wholesaler who had sold mushrooms to Mario Fabrini. In February 1973, Mario Fabrini heard from officials at the FDA. They were issuing widespread recalls of canned mushrooms. Now, Mario Fabrini was an immigrant from originally Croatia by way of Yugoslavia. He emigrated to the United States after World War II and settled in Michigan. There he founded Papa Fabrini Pizzas. He first went into business making and selling frozen pizzas out of his home, but The American dream was working its ass off, and his pizzas became so popular, he had to scale up, building a super modern facility, employing 22 people, and making up to 45,000 pizzas a week. Papa Fabrini's? Mm Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. Sounds like a pretty successful brand, yet I I don't recognize it. I had a hard time finding information about the company on the internet too. I was looking for like a picture of the frozen pizza or, you know, what the packaging might have looked like. No luck. Well, Fabrini submitted samples of his pizzas to the FDA for testing. When two mice died after eating his pizza samples, Fabrini was ordered to recall thousands of pizzas. Now this was, as you can imagine, terrifying for a small business owner. Fabrini estimated about 30,000 pizzas were involved, with a cost of about $30,000 to him and a retail cost of $60,000, making it the largest pizza recall in history at the time. There have been bigger pizza recalls since then. I, I guess. Wow. This is business-ending recall-level stuff, to have to just simply void a, such a huge amount of inventory. So... What did Mario do? For weeks, Fabrini drove all across Michigan, rounding up thousands of mushroom-topped pizzas. Just picking them up and throwing them in his trunk? Yep. Wow. From stores, from homes. Wow, wow. Mario wanted to try and create publicity over this event. Obviously, there was a recall. He couldn't stop that fact. So he was hoping that he could show that he was accountable for this and wanted to get some good press. That's smart. Mario Fabrini, being awesome, organized a public burial for the recalled pizzas. I love this. Talk about making lemonade. Oh, wait. It was mushrooms, wasn't it? Talk about making mushroomade. A date was set, people gathered, and the pizzas were tipped into an 18-foot deep hole in the ground in Ossinicki, Michigan, on March 5, before a crowd of onlookers, including then-Governor William Milliken and dozens of community leaders, Chamber of Commerce members, and local bank presidents. 
Mario was touched by this outpouring of support. At the funeral, he cooked pizzas for hundreds of people, and Governor Milliken spoke about the power of having courage in the face of adversity and tragedy. The politician was then given a frozen Fabrini pizza as a token of appreciation. Now, you might say, now this was a massive recall. Is is handing out pizzas a, a great idea? Well, unfortunately, in the two weeks between the recall and the funeral... Although 17 people came forward with claims that Fabrini pizzas made them sick, the FDA wasn't able to establish a link between the product and their illness. And the FDA revealed that, in fact, no presence of botulism or bacteria had been found. Oh, my God. So he threw away 30,000, 40,000 pizzas and... Oh, my God. The pizza had been tested on lab rats, but their illnesses and demise were attributed to an entirely different cause. But it didn't matter. You know, the pizzas had already been pulled from freezers and stores. That's unbelievable. After the pizzas were buried, the governor said a few words over the grave. Fabrini reportedly marked the tomb with a garland of red gladioli and white carnations, the color of pizza sauce and mozzarella cheese. The Associated Press covered the event. The funeral made the front page of the Detroit Free Press. But even though it was verified that Mario's pizzas were safe, I mean, the governor ate some, Fabrini's sales took a dive. And the event ended up costing him more than the $30,000 or $60,000 retail. This became even worse when, because customers lost trust in mushrooms, Fabrini tried to release new flavors. So that involves making different types of pizzas, packaging, blah, blah, blah. And so he tried to put more money into it, and it just didn't work. Fabrini sued the canning company. The Michigan Appeals Court pointed out in its final ruling on the case that FDA representatives threatened to inform Fabrini's customers to put the pizzas aside, and radio stations were advertising to the public that Papa Fabrini pizzas were potentially unsafe to eat. And faced with those threats to the survival of his business, the judges ruled that Fabrini had no choice but to recall the pizzas. They called it a voluntary recall, but really, Mm. it's not. The judges affirmed a $211,000 settlement that a jury awarded to Fabrini. Unfortunately, much of that went to paying his lawyers. Yeah, that's a common tale, isn't it? Yeah. And Papa Fabrini Pizzas was operating on borrowed time after their public funeral, even though I think it was a great choice because what else are you going to do? You're showing that you're accountable for the issue. You're maybe making a little bit of fun at the event. You're handing out pizzas. Isn't that how you make friends? That's how I make friends, yes. Papa Fabrini Pizzas went out of business in the early 1980s. They never recovered from the great pizza funeral of 1973. I have never heard of that. That's crazy. Here's Papa Fabrini dumping 30,000 pizzas into a hole. He's clearly mourning the loss and... I would understand why. Absolutely. Mushroom pizza is your favorite. It is my favorite. I got my information from USA Today, Mayo Clinic, Reason.com, Atlas Obscura, and Medium. And I would like to welcome our most recent patrons, members of the Order of Freaks, Kelly, Nicholas, and Lara. I hope that you are not yet annoyed by the influx of photos of cool cars I've seen here and videos of haggis. Mm Mm-hmm. The Order of Freaks are getting a definite insight into what it's like for 
two very insecure, socially awkward gringos trying to assimilate to life in Cuenca, Ecuador. And again, if you would like to support us, you can do so. Go to theboxofoddities.com. That's theboxofoddities.com. And there's a link where you can join the Order of Freaks. But you can also support us by telling your friends about the podcast, sharing it on social media, donning your Box of Oddities t-shirts and tote bags. Which are also available at theboxofoddities.com. Appreciate you guys. See you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions, and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.